Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. Today, we'll begin with more of our interview with Dr. Frank Lacido of Berkeley, and we'll start with a caller named Jared, who has a question about his grandmother's migraines. Go ahead, Jared. Hey, Mr. Lacido. Uh, my name is Jared Jansen. I'm from Fort Collins, Colorado, and I had a question for you in regards to my grandmother. She's been getting migraines her entire life and has tried every med there is in the book. And uh, I've been telling her about the benefits from cannabis and how that could help her. I've had friends that their migraines have been helped from uh, cannabis edibles. And she tried one one day and it was like her saving grace and has been since then. And I'm just wondering why it is that cannabis is the only thing that works for her um, down to kind of like a scientific level on, on how that is actually affecting her brain and making it so her migraines can get better and how this can help other people that are having really bad migraines as well. Well, you know, it's interesting that the uh, uh, migraine headache is one of the classic uses for cannabis over a hundred years ago when uh, William O'Shaughnessy rediscovered cannabis for Western medicine. That was one of the main things that it was purportedly good for. It really does help uh, most people with migraine in ways that a lot of the other medications are slower to help. So it's interesting that she uses the can of butter, the quicker you get a medicine into you for migraine, the, the better it's likely to work. So I would have thought that the inhaled method usually is preferred in that sense because inhaling it, whether it's smoking or vaporizing, gets it to you quicker. But the can of butter, if she puts that in her mouth and dissolves it there, it's going to get there pretty quick. If she puts it in brownies and eats it, it's going to take longer to work. So I'm not sure how she's using it, but I'm really glad that it works uh, because that's really one of the classic uses for for cannabis is for migraine headaches. So I'm not at all surprised that it would work uh, better than any of the other medications. Partly because you're seeing your patients get relief as well? Oh, absolutely. And so that's interesting that you say using cannabis really sublingually like that is the most quick-acting method, right? Well, the quickest would be the inhaled method. Oh, the inhaled, sorry, inhaled. And then after that, it would be sublingual? Sublingual would be the next quickest because you bypass the stomach uh, and don't have to wait for it to digest if it's sublingual. And then the slowest would be eating something because then it's going to take about two hours on an empty stomach to have the effect and probably longer if you've eaten something. Whereas if you use it sublingually, it's going to work, you know, probably in a half hour to an hour, maybe sooner. And then smoked or vaporized, it's going to probably work in five to 15 minutes. One thought about that is that when you're dealing with edibles, you may find yourself having gone too far. Everyone's got the story about that feeling where you took the wrong corner of the sliver of brownie or you took a little too much. Do you warn your patients about going too far? Yeah, yeah, that can mm. be an issue, especially when it's their homemade brownies or mm -hmm. uh, baked goods, because you may not know from one batch to the next how strong they are. And because of that delay of eating, you want to start low and then you want to wait a full two hours to see the effect. And typically, unfortunately, what happens is people waited an hour, an hour and a half. They're thinking, well, it didn't work. They take another dose. And now the first one's coming on and they've got the second one in their stomach. And so that's a problem. Uh, no one's ever died from an overdose, but you can feel dysphoric. Nobody's ever died from an overdose that you know of. No, no one's ever died from an overdose. Massive amounts of cannabis, you can't eat enough to kill you. You know, people don't die from overdoses, but you can get dysphoric, you know, you can feel unwell, uh, you can get vertigo, uh, nausea. One of the senses is when you're in that place, it's hard to know when it will end and who you might call. And, and certainly for a novice, it can be scary. 
doesn't seem to be the case with smoking, but here we have grandmas with a large population of people getting relief from a terrible thing like a migraine and eating it. So there, there needs to be a balance there. We have another caller, Rachel from Washington. Go ahead, Rachel. Hi. Um, I was just wondering um, about psychosis and putting people into schizophrenia. I've heard a little bit about that just from friends and in the media. So I was just wondering what causes certain people to go into psychosis or be drawn into schizophrenia. Uh, yeah, I think a few people can have, especially dose-related, especially in users that are not experienced, they can feel a little paranoid. If somebody already is prone to a psychosis, it may cause that to be exaggerated. It is temporary, fortunately, so it does wear off, but that is a concern. So when I'm taking histories of patients, it's nice to know whether they've had any psychiatric problems. And a lot of the patients coming in are using it for psychiatric problems. So for instance, anxiety, depression are you know, two of the top six uh, reasons that I would use it on patients. And fortunately, most of them have already tried it, but I'm seeing more and more cannabis-naive patients that want to see if it's going to help. And so the trick is always to start low and go slow on, on increasing it so that, you know, you can see. The problem with psychosis, the few times that I've seen it, has been people using high doses like dabs or edibles where they didn't really know the dose at first. So that can always be a problem. More and more now, at least in California, I think the edibles have to be marked with how many milligrams. And in some states, they're limiting how many milligrams there can be per dose so that people aren't thinking that 20 or 30 milligrams is a dose when maybe five milligrams would be an appropriate dose. Doctor, I wanted to ask you about alcoholism. Do you have people coming to you who are looking to get relief from alcoholism with cannabis? Uh, yes, I have had a few people that that's what they use it for. Again, most of the time they've already been a cannabis user and they find that they can abstain from alcohol when they have cannabis available. I'm one of the few doctors in California that still does family medicine. So uh, I still do my primary care practice. So I have a number of patients that are not cannabis patients. And uh, one of my primary care patients years ago told me that because he was in recovery, he didn't do cannabis, mainly because he was in recovery from cocaine in this case. And his experience was if he smoked a little marijuana, he then thought that he could do a line of cocaine and he could not do a line of cocaine without getting back into it. And so that worked better for him is to be completely abstinent through his NA program. And uh, years later, he was still my primary care patient. At this time, he wanted the cannabis evaluation because he realized that he actually could smoke a bit and, and curb any urges that he had to use it. So from one person to the next, and even maybe with the same person from one time to years later, it may be more or less appropriate to use cannabis if they've got addiction problems. But generally, cannabis is not a gateway drug toward other drugs. It's often a gateway back from other drugs because a lot of people can use cannabis and abstain from the things that they've had problems with. And there is the rare person or the occasional person that probably needs to uh, be away from anything that might cloud their judgment. More of our interview with Dr. Frank Lucido from Berkeley in the next episode of The Cannabis Corner. Yield Lab Grow Tents are the affordable solution to growing without compromising quality. The 600D thread count Myler fabric makes these tents extremely strong, and with the 95% reflective interior and light-proof zippers means there will be no lost light. Yield Lab Grow Tents. 
Hi there. I'd like to welcome my guest, Joe Devlin, to the Cannabis Corner. The Sacramento Bee said he is the quarterback for its commercial marijuana team. And I thought that might be a good way to start with you, Joe, to tell us a little bit about your role. I have not heard of a governmental job in, in cannabis, but certainly as the times have changed, it makes a lot of sense to have somebody at the helm of regulation for this big old tide that's coming our way. Let me know, why were you, Joe, the person that they considered, do you think? Well, thanks for having me on. Sure. You know, I think I was ultimately considered for the position and offered it in part because I'd done a lot of work for the city leading up to this and more for the mayor and council developing our policies around cannabis for the previous seven years, really working on cannabis issues for the last three for the mayor and council. So in that regard, I was a bit of a natural fit when they decided to create the office. And then did you hire a team around you? Yes, there's a couple of folks that work directly in our office. We're a small office of four, and then we have kind of other folks throughout the various departments across the city that interact with cannabis in some form or fashion that are kind of what are called opconned, operational commanded, it's a military term, but that are opconned kind of to our department. And that's everybody from police and fire to planning and building, code enforcement. When you talk about cannabis, both on the legal commercial side and on the the illegal side of things and really touches a multitude of departments. It sounds as if there are many people that have been growing for a long time in that area. We are talking about California, and they are not quite ready for the regulations that would be best for the introduction of this happening on a mass level, on a public level. Is that one of the main issues that comes on your desk, is how to communicate with people who are not necessarily doing it legally in the way that they approach it? And isn't it you and your team's work to say, these are the bullet points you must adhere to if you want to be in this business? Yes, exactly. We really face a couple of challenges as it relates to that. We certainly have a group of people that have been cultivating. I mean, we're not naive. We know that this has been taking place and certainly have a group of people that want to enter that legal space, want to become compliant, want a business permit, want to pay the taxes and be good neighbors. In kind of another group, we have a group of folks that just aren't going to want to become compliant and legal. Right now, our biggest challenge as it relates to cannabis in terms of issues and problems are not around those folks cultivating cannabis in a professional manner in a manufacturing industrial warehouse. It is really the illegal commercial scale cultivation that is taking place inside residential homes. These are homes where people don't live and we have hundreds of them throughout the city. That number could be as high as a thousand in, in the city of Sacramento. So that's where our calls for service are generated. Joe, uh, this is Adam Teitelbaum here. How is it that you know where all of these illegal grows are? Is it by undercover police? Is it through neighbors calling in complaining about grow homes? Well, we don't know where all of them are, but yeah, I mean, some of it does come from neighbors of, you know, hey, I saw somebody going to the, my, you know, the house, you know, next door to me or down the street from me, and it was full of pot. <laughs> and I could, the only thing I could see inside the door was, right. was a bunch of plants. But those are really where our, our calls for service in terms of like police that are cannabis related. It sounds like you, you're going to have your hands full just on, on that end of things, never mind everything else. Yeah, you know, but we're going to have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. There's a responsibility that comes with permitting, you know, legal cannabis. And I think the responsibility is to, is to do it well, to do it right, to 
make sure that the public is educated around the rules and what does the rollout of Prop 64 really look like. And then there's also the acceptance of the reality of cannabis, and that is that it's here that there are, you know, folks that are in the space that may not want to become legal. You know, we would have those challenges even if we had it move forward with permitting um, legal cultivation and legal manufacturing and have dispensaries. If we didn't have a legal cannabis industry, we would still have an illegal cannabis industry here in Sacramento. Could, could I ask you uh, what the state law or rules are as far as what a, you know, person who qualifies to, you know, as of age, et cetera, to be able to grow cannabis in their homes, what, what are the laws? Like, is it plant count? Is it how big the room is? Right. So currently, I mean, we've been operating under a couple of different sets of rules that have evolved over time. And certainly with the, with the changes that came with Prop 64, there's, you know, um, and now the budget trailer bill, SB 94, that has been passed but, but not signed um, yet. Right now, currently, Sacramento's residential cultivation is 400 square feet. We're likely to be changing that to align with Prop 64 and the budget trailer bill that was passed, and we're going to set that limit at six plants. And we're probably going to further restrict it to six plants in a in a single non-common area room or a garage. When you say six plants, is that six and six total, like three in veg, three in flower? Yep, six plants. Okay, gotcha. Less than I, we're, I'm out here in Colorado, and yeah, I mean all of the states' laws vary. So I was just curious. And also then, will municipalities and or counties be able to modify that further if they so choose, or do they not have that type of control? The maximum is six plants. Cities and counties can reduce that, but they can't outright ban it. Um, so we could say one plant or two plants or or three plants. There's a lawsuit already currently pending because one city adopted uh, a requirement that folks get a permit at home. That will probably withstand a legal challenge, I, I believe. But they also tax you said, on. Do you think it will or will well, not? With, sorry, it would not. And okay, um, that's in what addition, I thought. Yeah. In addition, they also required like the, the permit cost to be four hundred dollars or something, you know, ridiculous like that. Um, right. That that is that's not going to pass muster. No, it's not. Prop 64 amended our state constitution and, and kind of, you know, and extended that as a right. So I think the permit requirement, I think, is going to is going to run very quickly into legal challenges. And the fee of $400, I think, is just uh, its intention, I think, you know, it at least appears on its face that its intention may have been to, you know, ban it without banning it. Right. Now, now also, I'm, I, I thought that I had read that you have uh, rules set up similar to here in Colorado, whereas a city or a county could also pass a law to ban dispensaries in their, in their town. And, and, and I don't know if that's by a vote of the people or, you know, city council or county commissioners. Is this, is, am I kind of on the right track? 
You're correct. So I think it was Massachusetts that allowed for a ban, but it had to be voter approved. We don't have that mechanism. So what we have in California is local agencies incorporated in cities and counties have the ability to ban cultivation. They can ban manufacturing. They can ban delivery. They can ban every piece of like the legal cannabis industry. What they can't do is, as it relates to, you know, specifically to delivery is ban a delivery in to their jurisdiction because that is made within the public right-of-way. However, they can essentially not permit what will be legal cannabis businesses from from operating. What you're going to see, I think, roll out will be what is really going to be a patchwork across, you know, a state of 40-plus million people. In Sacramento's case, is a good example. So the city of Sacramento, which sits in the county of Sacramento, we are a good chunk of the county, but, you know, there are plenty of unincorporated areas and in other small cities that are within the county but outside the city. Um, so we in the city have permitted it. The county has banned it. And no other city in the county of Sacramento has permitted it. So right now we have the system where, you know, people are allowed to cultivate inside the city of Sacramento and have legal manufacturing and legal dispensaries, which we have 30. But you leave the city boundary and you go into Sacramento County and they have banned it all. So Is that because those areas are more conservative? Yeah, in a nutshell, yes. I mean, so we have, you know, we have 58 counties in the state of California and Lord knows how many cities, you know, probably well in excess of a thousand um, incorporated cities. Um, county areas, unincorporated areas, you know, are tend to be more rural and and more conservative by nature. And so there's a county board of supervisors that, that, is the elected body, and they represent not just the unincorporated areas, but, you know, they are also voted on by people that, you know, live in the incorporated areas, too. But certainly for Sacramento, the kind of further you get out from Sacramento and kind of the satellite suburb cities to Sacramento are more conservative, certainly, than the city as a whole. Did California mostly come up with their framework on their own? Did they did they look at what other states or even countries are or were doing? You know, I can't speak for the legislature. I mean, you have to talk to Lori Ajax about that. But, you know, I, I think the, the people that drafted Prop 64, I think, certainly took a look at other jurisdictions. If you read it, I mean, there's certainly some things in there that were gleaned from other places, I think, like Colorado, who, ironically enough, passed measure 64 to legalize cannabis. One of the interesting things about doing things now, I think, is that there there have been states like Colorado where, I mean, California was the first to legalize medicinally in the United States, but Colorado was, you know, among the first to, to go recreationally and really the first to set up a framework. And so I would think you could look at a state like ours and look at the successes and failures and make that to your benefit. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have the benefit of not being the first ones out the gate. I think while it's difficult to take 
policies in their entirety from, you know, any other jurisdiction because, you know, it really needs to fit California in our very elaborate, you know, kind of legal framework and certainly needs to fit at the local level. And, and, you know, as you know, all politics are really local. And this is an issue that, you know, the public is acutely aware of, especially when it's starting to be rolled out in their community. But I think what we have had the benefit of, of learning both from the successes and failures of other states like Colorado and like Washington, like Oregon, we're taking those lessons. And, you know, I'd say I'm contextualizing them and applying them to what I think the, the people of Sacramento will look favorably upon. Well, speaking of the people of Sacramento, are you or is your city requiring uh, having certain requirements as far as what type of lights can or can't be used or the use of CO2 burners, um, issues like that on the growing end both? And do they differ uh, between a personal personal grow versus uh, commercial grow? No, when it comes to the lighting, I mean, those are really business decisions. You know, I don't think we really have any interest in what type of light you use. I think we're hoping that folks are going to try and be energy efficient, but there's also a market incentive for them to be energy efficient as well, certainly for indoor cultivation. And the same for the people that want to grow at home. We're not going to prescribe any any sort of particular light as it relates to kind of the, the CO2. I'm just kind of starting to get into that. And I think that there's at least a conversation we had around kind of our in, indoor air quality requirements. So I'm not exactly sure how that all that is going to shake out, but I don't think we need necessarily need to be prescriptive of, 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 of about that. This industry is going to change so quickly. I think the best regulations for this industry are really a pragmatic framework with probably more guidelines and recommendations, knowing that everything around us is going to evolve very, very quickly over the next you know, two, three years. So does Sacramento allow outdoor cultivation? We don't. As a city, we don't have a lot of agricultural land left. <laughs> We've built homes on most of it. Like much of America. <laughs> right. You know, and someday we'll probably be ripping up some of those homes to get some of the ag land back. Hopefully. But, um, you know, for the council has decided as it relates to like the residential grows that, that it was just too much of an invitational nuisance. Uh, one person, you know, growing a handful of plants outside can really generate a lot of calls and complaints. And so I don't think the council wanted to deal with it. Um, so all of our cultivation has to be indoors. Understandable. The notion behind regulation with this tsunami coming to our zeitgeist, as it were, leaves one wondering, how do you license businesses? You're going to go from 30 dispensaries to 200 licensed businesses in your area. Is there part of a feeling that this may temper alcohol disease or use or... Right now, currently, the opioid issue in, say, Ohio is hard to believe how many people are passing away from touching and inhaling um, some of the, the new drugs that are this particular one coming from China through a, some kind of terrible cartel. Are the people in Sacramento saying perhaps this will temper our problem with those diseases and ER visits? It, or is the impetus a lot about taxes? 
Well, I think that this has been an evolution. It's been an evolution of, of thinking. I mean, if you look at the folks that passed Prop 64, that voted for Prop 64, it wasn't just younger voters. Um, if you you know do a survey of, of 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 registered voters, over half of registered voters will tell a complete stranger, a pollster over the phone, that they've smoked marijuana or cannabis. You know the the older voter now, which is a a much likely voter, is now uh, is that baby boomer generation. So I think it is part of an evolution. I think where Sacramento came is, is at currently is that this is here. That you know these stories of you know reefer madness and smoking pot will destroy your life forever. You know we're really just part of a, a misinformed campaign on cannabis. I, I don't think that they are acutely aware of the potential upsides of its medical benefits. So I think that's kind of the next evolution. I think right now the generally the people of Sacramento feel that this is here. It's been passed by the voters, and many of them voted for it. You know let's create a legal framework for it. Let's you know, assess some taxes on it. Um, and then I think in time, and I don't think it's going to be that long, I think we'll see, you know, some of the other benefits that have been experienced in some of these other states where, you know, opioid overdoses um, are are down. Um, certainly as new medical um, applications for cannabis come out, I think that is going to be, that's going to be the next evolution of, I would think, general think. But I think where Sacramento is right now is, you know, it's here, it's legal, you know, let's create a framework for it. We'll have more of our interview with Joe Devlin, Sacramento's Chief of Cannabis Policy and Enforcement, in a subsequent episode. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on The Cannabis Corner. 